We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Institutionalist, anti-institutionalist, Borg, anti-Borg, Team A, Team B, all of those, I think are describing the same thing, which is that there is a set of interlocking corporations, government bodies, uh, international government bodies, and NGOs that form a network of services and control that I think has become overwhelming and has acquired a, a kind of power, a comprehensiveness of power over our lives that is new. If there was one thing that I wanted to have everyone in America adopt from the Jews, it's that capacity to imagine a new world. There's something so special about the bravery and excitement, like the thrill of that. It feels like, to me, it's of this moment. And I don't know that most Americans think that way. On the contrary, Americans refuse to leave. Like, this is the last stop. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Hi, everybody. On this week's Moment of Zen, we're joined by Alana Newhouse, the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine, and someone whose essays and ideas we've discussed a lot on this show. For avid listeners, you'll know that we often reference Alana's article in Brokenism, which characterizes the real divide of our time between those who are invested in our current institutions and those who want to burn them all down and build anew. We'll link to that piece in the show notes. On this episode, Alana talked to us in depth about Brokenism, Antonio's recent Tablet article on abandoning secular modernity, moral complication and ambition, and more. So far, Gadol. Big so far. Oh, yeah. Wow. Did they make you do you like that, that when you were converting? No. I just, I, I watched Larry David Shofar episode, <laughs> and then I wanted some. And so I, I've got two of these buggers. They're amazing. They're from Yemen, actually, and they're officially kosher, as you can tell. I got them from Israel. Alana, we were just having this big debate. I was saying that institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist is often a red herring, or people use it maybe uh, a little too liberally or, or in a way that doesn't 
described much. So in my opinion, Balaji is a true anti-institutionalist. That, that guy does not want to reshape or reform institutions that exist. He wants to start new ones. He wants to start new organizations, new cities, new countries, new currencies. That guy's the definition of anti-institutionalist. Someone who just believes that the current institutions are incompetent and wants to put their people and their tribe in power and run those institutions, even if they run them in a very different way, that to me is very different from someone like a, like Apology. And it feels to me that the institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist is almost like a tautology. It's just like institutionalists are people that are in power because if Elon or Balaji or someone not of their tribe was running that same institution, that institution would no longer have their respect. And so it's really, you know, who's in power, who's not in power. And as long as my team or my values are in power, I support this institution. It's not like, you know, when Trump is in office, it's resist, right? You know, it, it's, and so it's no longer sacred in, in the same way. He's, he's desacredized it. And so that's why I think institutions for anti-institutionalists is a red, is a red herring. Or, and it's, or I should say, it's not worth putting Elon or Teal or Andreessen or that camp in the same camp as, um, as Balaji. They're just very different things. And we should be more granular. And I, I wonder if the terms are just left versus right. <laughs> Like, I wonder if that's a better, a more precise description of what's actually happening or what the actual divide is, because they want, they believe in institutions. They, they believe that they want, should run the institutions or their people or their values or their, their you know, belief in competence should run the institutions. Where am I wrong or, or where do you differ here? I'm not sure that I differ necessarily from your argument. I guess I would just want to add some texture to it. So first of all, I don't know that depending on what institution that we're looking at, I don't know that Andreessen wouldn't want to throw it in the middle of the ocean. I don't, I think that there are a lot of them that he wants, my sense is, is he wants to get rid of, or he would like to see replaced and uh, replaced with something that functions better. And then on the other side, I could argue that a real non-institutionalist is someone who doesn't believe that we should have any shared institutions, that we should completely decentralize our lives and actually, I could out Balaji Balaji here and say, why do we, we don't even, we don't need just new, completely new versions of institutions, but we need none at all, right? And we need, all need to live in much smaller communities driven by more granularly shared culture or, or other geography, uh, religion, whatever. But the real question is, is like, I mean, to me, what I find really interesting is when you go institution by institution and you have the fight about each one, right? Because the fight about Harvard is very different than the fight about Brown. Harvard is completely and totally um, in, in a way that is absolutely impossible. It, it is enmeshed with the Borg. It's enmeshed with corporations. It's enmeshed with federal government. It is not... It, it, it's its own complete phenomenon. And so looking at Harvard and saying, should we, is there a way to reform Harvard? Is there a way to make it better? Is there a way to bring Harvard back to what it was? Is a very different question and challenge than is there a way to do that with Barnard? Like the, so so I, the questions are more interesting to me when we actually get to specifics. Like, is it, can we really reform the FDA? And can we really, and like compared to the Department of Agriculture, because I can make an argument that they're two different challenges. What I really like, I like that you brought up the Borg, because I find, it, it, I think pro-Borg versus anti-Borg is more descriptive 
than pro-institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist. And so I think that that's right. Why don't you, why don't you unpack? Cause most people are hearing this, they're saying, what's the board? <laughs> uh, so what do you unpack? What is the board? What are the values that underlie the board? How, how do we make sense of who would fit on pro board or who would fit anti-board? Lana, how are you not using the metaphor you love? By the way, I love Eric, that Eric is using the unpack term that every podcast host has to use at some point during the podcast, like legally California law says you have to use unpack. It seems the distinction here is the one that you love citing of team A versus team B that Liel laid, laid out in his us and them uh, piece. By the way, there was like four different tablet pieces cited in the previous podcast we just recorded. So we're like on number five now. Uh, the piece us and them by Liel Leibovitz. And yeah, I mean, is, is team A, team B the distinction we're trying to draw here? Yeah. Um, I think it is. I think that depending on your vantage point, you are going to draw circles around the two sides slightly differently. But when I compare everyone's teams, they look a lot alike. So there's team A, team B, there's anti-Borg, Borg, there's, and again, I, but the one thing that I think is not really correct is right, left. That's the one that strikes me as the least helpful and the least descriptively accurate. Because when I look at those teams, they really are a mishmash. Both of them are a mishmash of people who 10 years ago would have considered themselves some on the left and some on the right. So the only one that's not helpful is that one. Institutionalist, anti-institutionalist, Borg, anti-Borg, team A, team B, all of those, I think are describing the same thing, which is that there is a set of interlocking corporations, government uh, bodies, uh, international government bodies and NGOs that form a network of services and control that I think has become overwhelming and has acquired and a, a kind of power, a comprehensiveness of power over our lives that is new. There are some people who find that overlay of that power to be con- deeply concerning and problematic and not problematic for individual liberty and problematic also for the future and the health of the country, the economy, our ability to have a good and thriving society. And there are some people that say, but inside of that interlocking set of systems is the way that that millions, if we're talking about America, tens or even hundreds of millions of people get the services they need, have the life they need, have the ability to have the jobs that they have, I mean, are able to have internet, right? So people who are inside of status quo or how, or the institutions that we rely on, will frequently reference all the things that we that are that are part of that system that are very necessary for everyone's lives. Um, people outside of it will talk about the accruing of sometimes scary control and uh, you know and, and, and a sense that there's control in the hands of very, very few people um, who are running like lots of layers of people's lives all the way down to our capacity to make individual choices. Okay, Alana, I'm going to go make Aliyah now because the way you described the West, it's just that's it, I'm out of here. I'm on the next plane to Tel Aviv. (laughs) So it's not just that the Borg is a collection of um, organizations across, um, you know, academia, media, 
uh, sort of government and, um, you know, uh, corporations that are working together in sort of, you know, maybe nefarious ways. It's also a set of values that they ascribe to, correct? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that for me personally, it's not, I don't care what the values are. I don't want anyone to have that control over my life. Like, even if they espouse exactly the values that I currently do, they're not espousing the values that somebody else does. And I don't want them to have the, that kind of control over American lives. And this is obviously, this this takes a, has an apotheosis in um, technology and in censorship and in sort of the uh, the, the overriding complex, this, the, the, the tablet piece that really is at the root of all of this is Jacob Siegel's disinformation opus, um, which gets at the control that this set of technology companies uh, aligned with the American federal government have over, over our whole lives. And the, there's this one part in that piece that I think is so, such an important point. You know, we, we talk a lot about like, oh, Americans just, Americans are just, I was actually on a podcast talking about uh, the my brokenism essay and the host said, you know, I just think it's amazing that like, we know all this stuff about things that are hard in the world, like, like climate. And Americans just won't do anything. They won't act. And I was like, I guess I just see it completely differently. I think we have been purposefully overwhelmed with information so that we will be paralyzed and unable to do anything. The amount of data that comes at us in any given 10 minutes of of any day is, it's just, it's, how, how do you, how do you act at all? And I think that that's the point of it. So when you see it that way, you're just like, I, I don't care whether or not today they believe what I believe. I don't care if the, not that the federal government's about to become Chabad, but like, even if they just decided that that, like, that they exist to promulgate the Judaism, not just Judaism, but the Judaism that I actually personally practice, I still wouldn't think it was right. Sorry, Lana, you threw me for a loop. I'm trying to imagine Hamad running the U.S. government, what that would look like. <laughs> See, now we're having an interesting conversation. <laughs> you and someone like Barry Weiss, uh, who's also going to come on the show at some point, would agree with that. Like, she doesn't want a ton of centralization either. And you'd agree maybe on 90% of other things. And yet there might be a, some small thing that is maybe a big thing where there's maybe a difference of of opinion related to the institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist or i don't know if it's board versus anti-board but how how would you how would you define that because what i'm what i'm trying to really figure out is i'm tr- we're trying to understand these terms so we could understand where different people you know fall and of course it's a spectrum and stuff like that but help, help us uh, outline it a bit so i don't want to speak for barry um because truly if there's anybody in the world that nobody else has to speak for it's her um but, um, but no, I'm, I'm serious. Like Barry has her own, um, she's, she's very articulate about her own views and about the uh, subtle differences or not so subtle differences between us. In general, I am very skeptical of American power right now. I'm very skeptical of American, the American government. Um, I don't feel, I don't think that I'm silly about it. I don't think that I'm, um, childish, like I'm just being childishly rebellious. Um, I don't think that I'm nihilistic, um, but I simply don't see the evidence for uh, enormous success 
and clar and and clarity and lucidity of purpose in the American federal government that would earn it the right to have me automatically imagine that it's on the side of angels. I think in general, I am much more willing to immediately, reflexively uh, question not just the motives, but also the consequences of actions taken by our government than Barry, who in some fundamental way really has a wonderful and and rich and historically rooted commitment to America and to the American ideal that for her, I think, means giving the benefit of the doubt to uh, some people that I don't give the benefit of the doubt to. And sometimes she's right and sometimes I am. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. You wouldn't be so far as to go to biology-level skepticism, would you? Or <laughs> You would. Okay, so... Sure. What does that imply? That does that imply that you're more well? Because biology is, you know, if you're more skeptical of America, you're perhaps less skeptical of kind of a multipolar world, and and you know, China and other countries sort of aggregating. You know, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't love government in general these days. I'm like not so. Uh, I I find the I find the accruing of power all over to be problematic, and that the internet. Uh, turbocharged uh, the power that was held by a bunch of institutions. So I, I, in general, I apply that skepticism all over. And I also want America to, to one of the things that I feel deeply uh, attached to is the idea of American regeneration and the idea that almost built into the concept of America and the history of America is this idea that we literally forget history the minute it happens in a kind of almost brutal way. And, but we just make something new. Let's make a new America, totally forget the past and try to uh, wake up the next day and imagine a completely new country. And there have been several of these, and I'm hoping that we're just on the cusp of another one. And that there's some sense of like a genetically inbred need for liberty and need for creativity and need for originality that will drag us in out of this quagmire and into something new. Like I, when I think about the Borg or whatever, and you know, the Borg makes it seem like there's a brain in there, and you know, I, I think that that's what's really questionable, and you start to you can get you can make yourself a little crazy. Um, but I really do sometimes think about that enmeshment of federal and corporate power. And it's like, I feel like America's like Gulliver, strapped down. But it what that means is, is that it can come out of it and it can be rescued or it can escape. And and what could that look like? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, I mean, that's part of what we're watching, right? It's like, what does it look like? Um, what does it look like to have 
I mean, I find it super interesting that you have somebody like Robert Kennedy polling at the numbers that he's polling. What what does that mean? Why is that? And you can slough it off and just say it's because, you know, celebrity or we like unusual personalities or whatever. But I think there's something else there. And I don't know what it is, but it's interesting to watch. How is your mental model at all changed with Elon taking over Twitter? Like what, and what's happened since? Like, what is updated about your mental model on these questions or what questions do you still have? Um, I'll be honest. I got to the point where I didn't think anybody who was rich or powerful from Silicon Valley was ever going to actually throw a gauntlet down. And so that was interesting to see somebody finally do it. But in terms of like my mental model, all it tells me was that there are people out there who are probably going to act in ways that I can't predict. And that's, and so I have to keep my eye out for them. But then that's also kind of frustrating because it's like, where the hell were all of you? <laughs> like, it's like, what was like, why did it get to this point? But maybe it always had to. Now we're talking about Hashem again, Antonio. See, we should just go back to religion, I think. <laughs> it's, less, it's actually less depressing than this, I, this I think we are talking about society. religion. I think this is profound. I think this is a deeply religious conversation. I think it's a deeply religious impulse, the impulse to, I think the impulse all over the political spectrum to want to fix things is fundamentally religious. Um, so I think we, I think we are talking about it, but that, and now we're getting, now we can get into Antonio's piece because that's literally what this is about. Well, one thing I wanted to highlight, by the way, in the piece that the link we should, we should share from Leo's piece is the, the last paragraph speaking Hashem for those who um, happen to not know Hebrew is sort of the name for God. Of course, it literally means the name. Uh, so that's what Alana was referring to. I had to, I had to translate Leo's Hebrew too in the, in the podcast with him. In the last paragraph of Leo's piece, and again, this is like the sixth tablet piece we've discussed in the past two hours. Um, some people it's dream a, of it's politics. It's a really good magazine, by the way. It, uh, <laughs> from an unbiased opinion here, of course, from the editor-in-chief. Um, <laughs> the last paragraph reads, some people dream of politics as the imminent perfection of all mankind. Hmm. I think I can smell what religion that is. Others, when they date or dream, imagine something that at first may seem smaller, but is in fact ultimately much, much bigger. The survival of their own family, their own people. Uh, on and on and on. And I think the distinction you're drawing there is between the universalism of Christianity that, and again, you see this in extreme form of San Francisco in which, you know, we can't actually fix the homelessness problem until we fix systemic racism and poverty in America. Literally, that we must recreate the kingdom of God on earth keep somebody from taking a shit in the muni stand down the street. And until we achieve that, that, that very simple civil governance problem is just completely un, unsolvable. And which does get to my piece called uh, The Moses Option. By the way, I love the title. Was that due to you, Alana, or was that somebody else, The Moses Option? Uh, I think The Moses Option was due to someone else. Okay. It's an obvious riff on Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, which in his mindset, he's like a tragic Christian had to go off like Benedict's order into a monastery. He doesn't actually literally mean a monastery, but to sort of get away from society. And this is the sort of Moses option. And the idea here being that among the various reasons for, for, for Judaism, you know, they're, they're definitely, and this is the, the cancel worthy piece, Alana, that I, you know, one of these days I might write is that, you know, Christianity, well, I guess it's partially in the piece that I wrote. Christianity definitely looks at the world in a certain way in a certain messianic mindset of, and then also the victim worship, right? That the thought of elevating a tortured criminal as the emanation of divinity on earth. It's most very strange. It feels strange even now, walking to Christian church and you see 
you know, this figure of, of someone tortured to death as the symbol of divinity, right? That's, if you talk to Tom Holland, who I interviewed, like, that's, he said, that's, that's the big break with Christianity or with Judaism in a way, right? Like, you don't really have victim worship in Judaism. On the contrary, like, Rabbi Akiva, or one of the early, one of the early sages who was actually tortured to death, is never really pictured as being flayed to death by iron combs by the Romans. Of course, he was a Catholic saint. You would see it in all the gory detail. In fact, you would identify the saint by the iconography of the instruments of their suffering. Everyone recognizes Sebastian because he's like a pincushion with arrows. And so that's one thing where in this little unauthorized religious offshoot called Christianity, somehow it went off and did this other thing, right? And this other thing is very different than, than the original construct. And in some sense, my conversion or whatever is rejecting some of the elements of Christianity. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of the, which I'm surprised didn't piss off more people actually in Lana, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, that's one of the elements of, in my story. Anyway, maybe you have more reaction to it. I, I think it's, it's interesting because I think it's, um, you're doing something with that piece that I don't necessarily do in part because it, it's just, a, it's not, I feel like faith is such a personal thing and it is so, such a personal impulse. It's such a personal experience. And I just, in general, personally, not obviously the magazine does what it does and we have lots of writers and people, uh, lots of people write uh, lots of different things. I tend not to look at religion and say like, that's the problem. Christianity is causing the problems uh, that in society, because I could very easily make an argument that, that I see other people making that like rabbinic Judaism caused the problems in our society. Um, there's certainly um, trad Catholic uh, people who believe that all evil centers inside of rabbinic Judaism. So there's some part of this that um, I get and I understand the thing that 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 did that does strike me, and maybe I, maybe I'm now about to get canceled for saying this, and maybe it's just that I don't maybe it's that I don't understand it. But so in Judaism we have this idea, which is called na sevenishma, which is you do it and then you'll believe. Judaism does not actually care if you believe in God. The only thing that's important is that you wake up every day and you practice. You do the actual. You observe the rules that you were set out to observe. And the hope is, is that somehow in the behavior, you, the faith will come. If it does or it doesn't, is kind of not anyone's problem. Whereas in Christianity, it feels like actually there's a hunt for people's soul. We need to know what you believe in your head and we need to scrub your head of bad thoughts and make sure that it's having good thoughts. That's where I feel like I see some of what is going on in contemporary American society. I see the resonances there of like, you can't have thoughts that we don't want you to have. And in a funny way, it's how, it's why the enmeshment with the surveillance state feels so oppressive. Because now you have a way to monitor and scrub my thoughts. Like that starts to feel really scary. And that's where like, there's some like Google Christian <laughs> and measurement that starts to feel like what we're looking at in a way that I don't, I don't really understand. So just to double on down on that, because I, I mentioned a little bit of that in the piece. So the piece that we're talking about is the most option thing. And there's a little bit of a like Hunter S. Thompson first person thing around the actual conversion process itself, including, including a ritual circumcision, just to, to talk it up a little bit. Um, but then specifically, it's like the final 
the apex of the climax of the thing is like the rabbi is asking me like the final spiritual questions, the points of no return. And none of the questions involve God at all. Right. And it's exactly what you said. Right. And the difference there is that, again, just to draw the distinction a little bit, it's funny because you, when you use the word faith, it already set me off. Faith is faith is synonymous with religion and Christianity. It isn't intuitive. It's actually practice. Right. And that's and the difference is Christianity is orthodoxic. Right. There, you have to, right. There's a right thinking and a right personal. You got a personal relationship with Jesus, your homeboy. Right. In Judaism, you don't really have a personal relationship with God. You, a Jew is, as a Jew does, and you say, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Had. You say Shema twice a day and you're good, right? And then something flows out of that relationship, but it's really about the practice and it's not about the, the doing of it. Um, and that, that makes it very different, right? And some would argue that, in fact, it makes, that's why Judaism, aside from people being cantankerous and neurotic in Judaism, is that it, 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 it like, the, the fact that you all agree on the Shema being what it is means that you can have all sorts of wild thoughts about all sorts of things, right? There isn't this orthodoxic, like, there, there isn't heresy in the same way that I think Christianity has heresy, in which that there's this realm of things that you cannot believe or do that are just completely beyond the pale. And it's, that's it. And I, it's, it's, it seems less structured that way to me. It's much more about practice. And it's weird because it, it does achieve a transcendence, right, clearly, but it's very focused on like, and then if you really go orthodox and like all the mental acrobatics around timers on switches and shit just <laughs> drive me crazy there's, there's no way i can go there but um yeah it's definitely a very different view of the world leaving aside other tenets like universalism just particularism and all the other stuff we need a christian on the, in this conversation because like what i guess i'm set yeah i mean i think what i'm trying to say is and like in, in in your phrasing in the beginning where you're like we can't actually solve the homeless problem of the homeless person standing in front of us right now because we have to solve the issues of systemic racism feels like that's the dichotomy that we're talking about i have to solve how everyone feels about everyone else before i can actually solve the practical human problem sitting in front of me and one feels christian and one feels i don't know whether or not it's jewish but one feel but but it definitely feels like the former feels christian to me like that we have to solve for people's thoughts. And I don't know that we can solve for people's thoughts in human nature. I, I know that it definitely doesn't feel American to try to solve for people's thoughts. The, the person we need here is Catherine Boyle, because yes. she, would, she always takes issue when we equate wokeness to like a more extreme form of Christianity. But she's she, Catholic, though. That's the thing. Wokeness is Protestant yeah. Christianity. That's the difference. And there's That's a big right. distinction there. And you'll find the biggest opponents of openness are what? Catholic intellectuals and Jews. Isn't that surprising? Yeah, I actually was with someone um, who said to me, uh, he's a, a very left-wing um, activist and during COVID actually said to me, um, we have it in our name. We are protesters. That's what we are. We're like, that's literally, it's Protestant. That, that's, it's, in our, it's in my name to do this. And I thought, wow, that is wild like they she just absolutely encapsulated antonio's point you know i think maybe the catholics are right not everybody should read the bible <laughs> you either go jewish and everyone has to read the bible and it's enforced literacy or you're not actually an adult in our community or you know what we're just going to outsource this to the intellectuals it's the in-between where things get a little yeah that's what i feel about news <laughs> like i feel like like the like it's like not everybody needs to read the news like do you really need to understand what's going on in ukraine Maybe not. Maybe you don't need to know what's happening with China right now. I don't know who you are, but maybe you don't. Maybe I don't. Like, I'm just like, 
there's some democratization of information or democratization of, of, of apparent wisdom that actually creates toxicity. I, you know, I would take the opposite tack. I think, I think levels of general misinformation and lying are actually less now than there used to be. I think it's just more apparent. I think maybe it gets transmitted faster. You know, Alana, you and I are old enough to be like the bridge generation when there was a formerly analog world. When you sat down to your uncle on Thanksgiving when you were a kid in the 80s, the wild shit that would come out of his mouth that's completely bizarre and deranged, conspiracy theories, just total rubbish, basically, that was just considered to be common knowledge and everyone would talk about. Like, it would put what's on Twitter to shame in terms of just how utterly deranged it all was. And so people have always been misinformed and conspiratorial and full of shit. And it's just, this has always been true. I, I guess so. It's just that now I feel like part of the, like, it's not my uncle at Thanksgiving. It's like some senator. It's like, like the people saying the deranged shit feel like they're of greater stature these days. And that feels more problematic. And, and maybe your uncle is more accurate than the uncles back in the days. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can, can we talk about something else that's going to get us canceled, Alana? You know, the bee in my bonnet. One other distinction, now that I'm the, I'm the fucking, you know, Jew whisperer here to the Gentiles here, like the, the weird intersection of the, of the Venn diagram here. The, the other thing, you know, you know, I've constantly gone on about this, like notions of justice and righteousness in Judaism versus Christianity are very different, right? And again, this, this whole turn your cheek business, which is in the Gospels, kind of not in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, I'm hardly the first person to observe this. Like many Christians are like, how do I reconcile the two gods on either side of this book? Like clearly there was a new covenant. God changed. I don't know. It's an upgrade. Something's different about this, right? While there are roots in Judaism and Christianity, this is a new covenant. It's just, it's a, it's a totally different thing. Um, and in fact, the more extreme version of that is, is, is rejecting uh, what you're calling rabbinical Judaism, for, which for those who don't know, it's like, what do you mean? What other type is there? I think what you're contrasting it is post-temple Judaism, right? The, the, the Judaism that we know that's he heavily textual, disseminated in synagogues, which was a radical change from the sort of temple Judaism tied to a particular state and all the rest. Although, in some sense, after 2,000 years of wandering, here we are back again to the state of Israel uh, controlling the Temple Mount. Even though on Tisha B'Av, we lament the destruction of the temple, but here we are lamenting it literally on the Temple Mount that Jews control. But that's a seven. Are we, so, we going to talk about Israel too? Well, oh, we absolutely have to talk about Yes. Oh. Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is that part of the reason why the West doesn't understand Israel is actually for religious reasons. Because the Christian sense of justice and the Jewish sense of justice at its core are actually pretty different. I mean, not like worlds apart, but, but somewhat different. There's this great piece I think you've, you've cited um, by uh, Mayor Soloveitchik uh, about the virtue of hatred, which appeared in, of all things, I think, uh, First, First Things, things. Magazine, That's right. which is a Catholic, but they wouldn't publish it now. Just to lay the setting there, I think he quotes an experiment that Seaman uh, Wiesenthal uh, did in which an SS guy asked for, I think I've said, quoted this story before, asked for forgiveness, and the Jew doesn't forgive him, and the reaction from the Catholic priest and the Jew are very different. One says, well, forgive the guy, the other guy says, watch, well, I think he, he I, and and I think the, the, the question of forgiveness is different. And I, just to get it very particular, um, you know, recently I was noticing uh, Israel now is in a bout of both rocket attacks and terrorism and all sorts of shit's going on in Israel. And two Israelis, I think there were settlers, were murdered by a terrorist. And Netanyahu just tweets out in a way that no, I think, Christian Western leader ever would, says, oh, yeah, we settled accounts with the murderers or so and so. Like, basically, they got, they got all fought on their asses and they basically whacked them. <laughs> they just engaged in a target assassination and they just killed them and like, that's it. And they probably destroyed their family's homes, which is part of the standard reprisal attack that happens in, in Israel. Um, and this is just the way it works. It's like, yeah, we, we just, we don't, we don't, we don't forgive our enemies. We just, it's a tit for tat struggle. And this is, this is just how it works. And I think, I, I think there's a difference there in the way that we perceive a, a just world. And somehow 
the West is never going to totally understand Israel for that reason. My husband has a joke about me that, you know, like the idea of like forgive and forget, or then some people say like well, for, forgive, but don't forget. And he likes to say, oh, a lot of she forgets, but doesn't forgive. <laughs> just like, like, I don't remember what she did to me, but I don't like her. <laughs> like, I'm not sure what happened, but I don't forgive her. And it feels fundamentally Jewish. Like, I don't, what do I need to forgive you for? It's not between, like, like if you have, if you're upset that you did something wrong, that's between you and God. Like, I, I, it, the whole idea of clean slates feels deeply un-Jewish to me. You're not supposed to have, it's supposed to get very dirty, your slate. That's because forgiveness, the mechanism for forgiveness, right? The, the sacrament of reconciliation in Catholicism and teshuva in, in Judaism are actually very different, right? In Catholicism, there's a moral intercessor called the priest. You go and ask for forgiveness from basically a third party who has nothing to do with whatever the hell you did. You somehow get forgiven. And yet, to be clear, you may have still wronged that person, right? Like that person doesn't actually get made whole. But in Judaism, it's actually very different. Before we Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you actually have to go back to the person and say, sorry, I fucked up. How can we make you whole and fix this? And if you don't do that, there is no forgiveness. <laughs> like you're fucked. You just get written in, 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 in the book in, in the wrong way, in the book of life in the wrong way. And, it's, and, and you sit there and get mortified by it. And so there, there is no forgiveness on offer. The Catholic Church is kind of like forgiveness as a service, to, to, to cite a technical uh, analogy, when Judaism just doesn't have that. It, it just doesn't exist. It, there's no way to actually do that. Right? And I think maybe that's what you're touching on. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think that, look, I think that there are a lot of issues a lot of reasons why I don't even know what the West is anymore. So it's hard for me to talk about sort of like the West and Israel. And uh, I don't, Israel's not the West. Like, I don't even know, like Israel seems more like the West to me than certain European countries right now. Let's pause there. Why do you, why do you think that? Because I think that, but I'm curious why you think that. Israel's embrace of technology, to be honest, um, and it's early and aggressive embrace of technology and engagement also with building technology meant that it joined a universe of countries in adopting those technologies in such a way that it infused Israel with, uh, with cultural changes that meant that it looked a lot like other Western cities that were adopting some of those cultural changes at the same time. So Tel Aviv looks a lot like a lot of other Western cities. So to me, it's, it's, and you saw it with the adoption of, I mean, as, as, as narrow an example as it can be, and without getting into the controversy of that, like you saw it with the adoption of the COVID vaccine, right? Where Israel was a huge and early and comprehensive adopter of of the vaccine and a proponent of it, um, that was like a, it felt to me like a, a cultural effect of having modernized in a aggressive way. I mean, that, that's definitely true, right? And if you look at Israel's GDP per capita, it's actually higher than like Germany's at this point. Like Israel's no longer kind of a poor second world country. It's actually quite wealthy. What I thought you were going to say, one thing that I've thought that I find very interesting and ironic is that, you know, to the extent that the, that the Western world has its origins in Greek ideals around democracy, right, and the citizen soldier and participatory government, you're going to find a lot more of that in Israel these days than you will in France or the United States, right? Like the the Greek ideal of the citizen of the citizen soldier, Cincinnati, or the Roman the Greco-Roman ideal 
Cincinnatus, right? The general who goes off and leads in victories and then serves his country and then literally retires to his farm in the Negev. Like that, that, that's like a fantasy in the West. That actually is like the norm, actually. In, I mean, Naftali Bennett, for example, or, or Netanyahu, you know, come from elite, an elite family, often wealthy families, do well in software, serve in the military, serve their state, and then go back. And that's just the way it works. It's, it's fascinating to me that, particularly if you know the, the history of the Jews, the Maccabees, I mean, the, the, or even intellectually, the, the difference between Athens and Jerusalem as, as intellectual concepts, right? Like the fact that Athens is actually surviving through Jerusalem more than it is in Western capitals to me is really quite, kind of fascinating. Even as Israel is becoming less Western, more Mizrahi, more Middle Eastern, and all the rest of it. And maybe even as what the countries that were uh, the standard bearers of the West are becoming distant from the central principles or ideals that the West stood for. So it's also, it's like, it's weird because I don't even know what any of these terms mean because everything's in such flux. What is, I guess, America is still the West? It is West, but I don't know what it, I don't know what that means anymore. I don't know what, I don't, people talk about the West and like, especially like people who like to talk about civilization or whatever, civilizational changes. And I don't, I don't really think I understand what those terms mean anymore. Here's the thing to talk about. This is the best form of, of Straussianism. It's talk about things that are actually more politically touchy and edgy, but don't code as red or blue in the United States. This is how you can get away with it, right? So one way to do this is to take the same setting but frame it in another thing. So let's frame it in Israel, because of course Israel is the center of the world, right? Because we're in, we're going to engage in culture, the cultural narcissism of the Jews, as our friends uh, uh, the Kudihi reader likes to likes to cite. One of one of the things is what's going on in Israel. I find what's going on in Israel fascinating because you have this revolt, like the right populist thing that in the U.S. has sort of taken some form with Trump. In Israel, has really become like a strong political force and has actually seized power in a way. A lot of the protests you see there are what was the traditional secular liberal wing of Israeli society, in some sense, losing out demographically and democratically uh, to other factors in society that are more religious, frankly, less European, more, more Mizrahi. And it's an interesting, you really have that, that comp- and you see this everywhere in the West. There's a lot of competitions between global liberalism and particularist right wing, whatever. But in Israel, it really has kind of come to the fore. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that, Alana, and how does, how does this all end? Or where does this all go? My feelings about what's going on in Israel right now are overlaid by my sense of it being an adoption in some senses of themes and impulses from America, which makes it less interesting to me. Things that feel native to Israeli politics and native to Israeli culture, I find fascinating. This feels like Another protest for democracy, which is another word, I don't know what it means anymore, where a a host of phrases and slogans on both sides feel like they're literally what I just saw here in the US. And they're versions of exactly what I saw here. So then I feel like I don't know what I'm looking at. And I, my mind starts to slide off it. A little bit, to be honest. The B in everyone's bonnet about Israel is that it's an it's an ethno state. It's it's a religion with a state and a people that's willing to do anything to defend its own people, and that that's it. That is the sin. You cannot consider a state of Israel that wouldn't include millions and millions of Arabs as part of it. And you know, like like Leo asked, is it a Jewish state or a state for Jews? And the West's answer is no, no, no. It's it's a state that happens to include Jews and Arabs. And the the answer of the Israeli right is like no, no. It's a Jewish state. 
And by definition, that can exist sort of in the current liberal mindset. I do think that Jewishness throws a wrench into into the conversation about nationalism that's taking place in Israel and into actually, I think, Jewish Jews and Jewishness throws a wrench into the American political landscape, too, which is why we're so interesting. Um, it's also why um, we become a hate object so easily, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. But I think one thing that the, the non-Jewish world maybe doesn't see is that it also throws a wrench into the Jewish world, right? Yes. Diaspora Jews ponder yes. Israel and are like, oh, like, what the fuck now, right? And one of the strains in Judaism, right? And obviously, yeah, you know this a lot, but I'm repeating it for sort of our slightly less Jewy, uh, our audience, right? That, you know, re- Reform Judaism as like a movement was always pro-assimilationist and anti, and, and like explicitly anti-Zionist, right? If you actually look at, I was reading a, a writer you published, Walter Russell Mead's book about uh, the Ark of a Covenant, which is a relationship between American, uh, the American world and, and, and the Israeli, and also your book on Zionism that just came out as well. I think, in fact, I was reading his essay that came out in that book. He cited how the reform rabbis from the U.S. were anti-Zionists and anti-Zionism, did not actually want there to be, and then perhaps most recently the publisher of the New York Times were actually rather anti-Zionist during the 20th century, right? Because the whole thought that we would need in Israel was like, no, 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 no. We're going to exist, some, we're going to bet on liberalism, right? We're going to exist as a minority. We're Americans first. This notion of, you know, recuperating our ancestral homeland is not only a far-fetched idea, which it was at the time, but also works against this idea that a Jew can be an American or a Frenchman as, as American or as French as anybody else. And of course, the European Jews who thought that ended up in the ovens and the American Jews can continue to think that. Um, and it turns out the Zionists, which was the crazy idea in Europe, turned out to be kind of the right answer. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of one of the tensions that we're talking about here. And like those tensions are still unresolved. Right. And not to, not to bring it back to um, brokenism or state of the institutions, but to me, so, some of the conversations that I have or speeches that I've given in front of, let's say, Jewish audiences, when I talk about uh, not being so invested in the current American institutions, it, from everything from your local private you know, high school for your kids all the way to the American federal government. Um, And Jews will be like, what do you want me to do? Where am I supposed to send my kids to college? And there's like an anxiety and a a, a fear, honestly, a terror. And I look at these people and I'm like, you realize that Jews existed long before Harvard, right? Like, and we're going to exist long after Harvard. And in many senses, I hate to say it and talk about um, tripping wires here, but Harvard didn't make the Jews special. The Jews made Harvard special. And if you don't understand that, that, that sense that it is, it is the human beings that give institutions or ideas or entities their power or don't, there's something just so pale about that life. And I'm not talking even just Jews saying this, anyone saying it. So the idea that you'd say whether you're, and, and this is sort of my, I, I guess, where I depart from liberals, or it's one of the ways I depart from people who uh, feel deeply attached to the labels of, you know, classical liberal or liberal, whatever those means. I just don't see it as being so important to believe in that institution. I see it as important to believe in humans. And like, you, and then you, then you look at these Jews and you think, and the, these people who are like, what are we supposed to do if we can't send our kids to Spence? 
And you're like, you realize in your lifetime, a bunch of Jews made a whole other country? Who cares? Like, they can go to the Technion. They don't have to go to Harvard. <laughs> you're so worried that you're not going to have a high school to send your kids to. You can make things. Go build things. We built a whole country. Like, you can go and make cool shit. And you have it in you to do that. And the distance that people have from their creative power feels like, it feels like a waste. But yeah, but I mean, but I mean, Alana, again, that's, I just got to this party, but that, that's a very Jewish perspective, right? Like Is it? a lot of American, yeah, okay, of course, saying that you have some, you have some ethnic or religious or cultural allegiance that will last longer than Harvard. I mean, this, in my opinion, is one of the privileges of being Jewish is that you can say that because you see, and if you look at the literal historical truth, of course, it's not quite as unbroken, but there is a cultural thread that extends from literally a thousand years before Christ until today with the same text and the same book. And not everyone can say that and look at that, right? We can take comfort and hold to the tree of life of the Torah and say there's something there, but that's not true for most of Western civil society. I mean, that feels like a choice. Like you can have an allegiance to something that has roots. But even if you don't, even if you don't need, even if you don't look to something that has history, you can say, I'm bigger than the thing, uh, human beings are bigger than the things that human beings make, or we could be. And I don't understand the, 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 the fundamentally this need to, and fear of a world that doesn't have the institutions that you're familiar with strikes me as a recessive way of living. I, I think it's harder for, again, people without that, that Jewish background to say that, because again, what, what else is there, right? And I think that, you know, I get this in my essay, secular modernity has no functioning, or, or actually the white Judaism that you requested, there is no functioning organization society other than corporations right now, right? It, it's hard to cling on to anything as just like a normal member of society anymore. And, you know, you, you can go to a Catholic church or you can go to a synagogue and sort of get there a little bit. Or a mosque. Or a mosque. But it's hard, though. It's hard to reconcile. Those worlds are actually very disparate from the Harvard elite world, right? In some sense, you've got to leave the Catholic Church or, in fact, the mosque or any, anything else behind when you enter those, those corners or, or Judaism, for that matter. But um, I think it's a trade-off. I guess I just want to say that, like, the thing that it feels important for me to mirror back to people is that sense of emptiness that you feel in a world where your meaning and purpose comes from corporations or from the government or from politics is real. That emptiness is real. You feel it for a reason. And if there, there are, you've just eaten a bunch of cotton candy and there's actually like a whole real universe of, of food that's real and things that actually will give you purpose and meaning and relationships and, and goals and ambitions that will bring some magic to the world that strikes me as the reason why we're here. Right. But I think, yeah, to, to be even more depressing, I mean, to quote, I think David Foster Wallace in one of his essays said, Americans have arrived at the unusual situation where they love nothing more than themselves. <laughs> it's another way of phrasing the same thing. And I think it's, um, and even inside tech, just to get critical of tech a little bit, this whole life extension movement and transhumanism and, and, this, and the singularity, it's really the inability to actually believe in what I think Becker called immortality projects, right? Something bigger than yourself, whether it be a nation or an organization or even your family, whatever. It doesn't have to be the strangest thing. Like we just don't have that anymore for most of us. I'm not going to lay blame at anyone specific, at the feet of anyone specific, but the utter divorce almost or complete 
distance and strangeness between tech and the world of God or bigger ideas of immortality, I think has been really destructive and has been, has created just the sense for a lot of people that in order to move through the world in a way that feels sophisticated and feels progressive is to divorce yourself from those ideas of God, that actually God and faith is retrograde and musty and insular and not believing in God and being atheist and, 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 and actually being quite smug about it is the way to transmit a sense of intellectual, scientific, technological superiority. And I think that the jig is up. Well, but, well, and then the irony, of course, is that Valley people are the most religious people you've ever met. <laughs> they, 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 all go, they all go on their little hodge to Burning Man every year and have their little experience in the desert. Uh, they all have their little custom vanity diet whose like, strictures are worse than any kosher diet you've ever seen. They engage in these corporate exercises called startups, of which I'm guilty myself, in which they engage in bizarre cult-like behavior around the senior guru leader. There's all the religion is always conserved. It is never it is never removed. It is never deleted. It's only reshaped and reemerges in usually inferior form. And that and it's it, Silicon Valley is literally the most religious place on earth. It just it is not a formal religion, but it, in terms of the supernatural playing in everybody's lives, this is like the most deranged religious part of the United States. In my opinion. I had a friend who's in technology come for Passover Seder and was trying to explain that we're going to have, you know, we have wine and what kind of wine do you want? Because you're going to have to have four glasses of it. So, and he was like, oh no, I don't, I don't, I don't drink. Um, I really think alcohol is super toxic for the body. Um, and I was like, okay, totally respect that. Totally get it. At which point, like he starts talking to everybody about how he's microdosing and doing shrooms every week. And I was like, Okay. Literal poison, by the way. Like literal yeah. poison. That's exactly right. <laughs> I was like, wait, hold on. The lack of awareness is um, impressive. Yeah, the whole Uberman alcohol thing is really funny because he's probably right. Or, but I think I've made this joke before. It's like, if you give up alcohol, you don't actually live longer. It just feels longer. Like everything <laughs> is just more boring. You don't, <laughs> you don't do the Passover Seder. You don't have the barbecue with the boys and the beer. Like, it, like uh, he's probably right. I'm sure statistically you have 1.6 more years of life if you don't drink alcohol. But like, who cares? Like, it just doesn't. Um, and then also religiously, the, the four glasses of wine is a Passover thing that you're supposed to do. And then in Purim, you're actually supposed to be slightly inebriated as well. So you can't kind of can't be a practicing Jew and not drink alcohol. Anymore. You can. I assume you can drink. Well, you, you can, can drink grape juice and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, you could do it. But um, and again, like I'm really respectful of people and their like their needs to put boundaries on themselves. And I think that it's great. I just think that the sense that one kind of dosing when under the banner of religion and God was poisonous, but this other dosing went under the banner of the world of modernity was seen as actually wellness. At least I'm aware of what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, being under the influence of, you know, uh, a homily or a speech or whatever at Shabbat services is retrograde, but listening to a podcast from a guy and then giving up a thing like that—that that is the cutting edge. We are we we are the true knowers of history's true course and the way humanity actually live. The moment of censorship and the moment of where you actually have big platforms and in journalistic outlets censoring information and saying like 
it's okay if we don't know the full truth. It's okay if actually we only know certain things that are in fact false um, because it's for the betterment of society. Coming literally right on the heels of, no, nobody can believe in God because you can't prove the existence of God. It's just, it's just, it's so stark. It's such a stark manifestation of your argument that religion just never goes away. It only changes its costume. I want you guys to help me understand something because during this conversation, we've been talking about this idea of a Jewish perspective on something like justice. And then maybe that involves like more partiality than universalism. Particularism, particularism. Yeah, yeah particularism. And yeah. yet, when I think about the Jews that I know and that I grew up with, you know, I went to University of Michigan, I was involved in the Hillel community, and I, I met people who would agree with everything Alana said about, hey, there's more to life than corporations and, you know, the cotton candy. And they were very involved in their Judaism, very involved. It was their main identity. And yet they seem to have what we would call Christian notions of, of justice. They, they were very interested in tikkun olam, were very interested in social justice. And they might find some of the things that we've been talking about here, uh, you know, not to not resonate or to be anathema to, to where they believe in. That's like a majority of Jews I, I grew up with and, and know. And, and you guys, the anomalies. So maybe I know the wrong kinds of Jews or not the wrong kinds of Jews, but a, a disproportionate, like an unrepresentative faction of American Jews. Um, or maybe they, is it that they misunderstand their Judaism or is it different? Like, help, help me understand what, why that is the case. I'm grabbing the shofar in case I need it here. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Because they, they look like you, Alana. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I think that there's, um, we're in a different moment now than we were in back then. Um, so I, the first thing to acknowledge is, is that there was, responding to the moment of 10 years ago or 15 years ago in that way was different than uh, how people are responding today. In part because I do think that the the coming together of the that central power a first of all it came, it it did come together in a in a more connected way um, in the post basically I would say after nine eleven uh, you started to see real centralization and since then it's gotten it's just gotten more connected um, and more enmeshed but also then it, in the last I would say five or six years. People have gotten to understand the window on that world and on the world, how power moves in the world has gotten clearer. So what that means is, is that I think there's a legitimate conversation being had. And again, this is why I think the left-right dichotomy doesn't work well um, and isn't quite, it doesn't resonate for people who actually are in these spaces. Because if I can say, I want to help the environment, I would like to wake up tomorrow morning and I would like to work for the health of the environment. What is the best way for me to do that? And I think right now there's a really a much broader sense on the part of a lot of people that there are a lot of different ways you could do that. It's not simply going and volunteering for Greenpeace. And in fact, we don't even really 100% know who Greenpeace is or whatever, whatever organization, right? There's just more skepticism and more sense of like, I don't know what that does. I've seen so many organizations that seemed like they were good and well-intentioned organizations looking to enrich and generate justice or fairness or some goodness in the world that turned out to be corrupt and bad. And so there's just a general sense of like, we may want the same thing, 
but I'm actually going to tolerate a lot. Uh, I'm going to tolerate it looking different from you, differently from you when you wake up every day. So in general, I think that people are alive to the way that power works, maybe in a way that they weren't back when you were in college. Maybe. Okay, I've got a very different take, Alana. I think you're you're being very nice. Can I can I go into my anti-reform screed or is that gonna lose your like half your donors on? <laughs> please, please Antonio. <laughs> well it's you saying so, okay. it, not me. So Okay, so okay, so Alana is disassociating herself. Okay, here, here comes my anti-reform screed. By the way, my conversion process started inside the reform movement. It actually started with uh, the reform movement, their online course thing, until I discovered the conservative movement, believe it or not. Um, I, I, just, I just had like total... Two, two Orthodox rabbis uh, wrote to me to ask, to tell, to say that basically when you're ready to do your Orthodox conversion, they're ready for you. <laughs> Look, they're trying to upsell me. I'm like, I'm on, it's like the freemium plan. I'm like in the middle <laughs> tier and they want to get me to like the super enterprise tier of another plan. They're like, that's it. The sales team got the like, the CRM, like, oh, we got the lead. Oh, oh, oh the, the guy's halfway there. <laughs> See, I can make those jokes now. That's, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the primary advantage of community Judaism. You can make good jokes. No, no. The, the key thing with reform Judaism is that, I mean, to be blunt, it's basically Protestantism, right? If you actually go back to the original origins of, of reform Judaism, they actually tried to create a form of like Sunday school, often literally Sunday uh, observance of, of Judaism, sort of form of, of, of Judaism, right? And again, there's reasons for it, and you can go, it's a long history there. But if you can go look at some of the early synagogues, the late 19th, the early 20th century, I forget which synagogue it is in New York that looks like a Catholic church. And that's because they, they were, in many ways, trying to make Judaism palatable, um, you know, as a, a, as a Christian thing. And a lot of their thinking to be blunt, and this this was like immediately evident to me as soon as I entered the reform conversion you know, intro to Judaism course, this Tukun Alam business is a Christian concept. This notion of fixing the world and you acting to fix the world, in my opinion, I mean, it, strictly speaking, the term means literally repair the world and it comes from a Kabbalistic text, but in, in the Kabbalah, it's, it's, not, it's not used how it's being used now. It is being used now to be literally synonymous with social justice as it's interpreted by congregationalist, you know, Protestant American Christianity. That's what it is. And if you read the Torah, the Jews, Moses was not trying to fix the world. There was no fixing the world. <laughs> they were trying to survive in a very hostile environment. There was none of this fix the world business, right? And so I, I think a, a lot of Reform Judaism, the reason why it's comfortable with wokeness and that it's comfortable living in the elite precincts of American society is because it's not that different, frankly, than the waspy religious backdrop that sort of colors that world, in my opinion. It doesn't break from the Christian world in the way that Orthodox Judaism or potentially conservative Judaism does. My sense of American Judaism and American Jewish communal life right now is that it is in a state of massive change and that none of the terms that were operative um, when I was growing up are really operative now. I don't even really know. I think there are a lot of Reformed Jews that see themselves as and, and believe themselves to always be committed to uh, Jewishness, to Jewish, to Judaism as a religion and to Israel. There are uh, modern Orthodox and Orthodox Jews who are questioning uh, their connection to Israel with a secular government that they see doing things that they can't justify um, and that feel outside of the bounds of what they they in the world that they uh, function in see as right. Um, and so I don't even know what to make of these labels anymore. The Liel's piece from a few years ago, the Team ATV piece, us and them, 
I think lays out something that is going to become more true in the next 10 years, which is, I think that there's the creation of two different new American denominations happening. And they each have members of the three denominations, three previous denominations in them. And it's not right and left because there are plenty of people in Team B who are not religious, who are not, who don't see themselves as politically right wing. And then there are plenty of people in Team A who are deeply observant and who feel like they are very connected to their Jewishness and to Jewish religion. So it's not, the, the, the lines are going to be very different. But I do think that they're going to roughly correspond to what I call like to status quoists and to brokenists. So like in, in Liel's uh, articulation of this, you know, he sees like Team B as being minority of Jews. It's a smaller group of Jews, but they're made up of a bunch of people who used to be reformed conservative Jews who feel connected to Israel, don't really understand how Israel became the lone object of hate on the left, um, who also actually are quite proud of America, who feel unashamed about capitalism. Uh, and then ethnically, a bunch of Syrian Jews and Israeli Jews, Persian Jews, Russian Jews. And that, that, that's, what's, that, that's an emerging almost denomination in American Jewish life. And then on the other side, there are the people who are sort of like a, a bunch of people who are historically uh, the children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren of people who came here in the 1900s, people who were very much part of American society, people who identified themselves with liberal American circles and with uh, the institutions of American cultural life, you know, that they are going to be their own denomination. And, and what's interesting is that you can actually figure out who's who by projecting that vector, like against the dimension of like Israel and how you feel about Israel. So one of the passages in my conversion essay, that funny drew attention from your editors. One of the questions they asked me, I forget the exact phrasing, but basically, do you vow to be supportive of the state of Israel for you and your family, right? And the editor's like, wait, what? They actually asked you this? And it felt dated in the sense that in the 20th century, I think that would have been standard. But in a conservative synagogue, which to be clear, for those who don't know, conservative does not represent an extreme. It's actually kind of the, the moderate middle tier between orthodox and reform. Um, so, but it's called capital C conservative, not, not little c conservative, right? They actually ask you about Israel as a thing. I think that's going to be less and less the case going forward, at least for, for most of Jewish life. Look, it's not, I mean, Antonio's not, he's obviously talking, he's, he's, he's describing something that's quite real. This week, the reform movement, there's a, uh, Amiel Hirsch in New York had a, uh, a whole conference around this issue, around whether or not the association of reform rabbis with leftist and progressive politics and with anti-Israelism was going to, in, you know, an Ami's sense of it was going to hollow out the reform movements or the hollow out the power of reform Judaism's uh, future in America. And uh, his argument is that there's really a need for a reconnection there and a re-embrace there. So it's not like Antonio's describing something that's not real. It's just that I think that we it's it's we're so far gone past the point of real change that like it, none of these labels actually are not I, I don't know what I don't know what kind of rabbi Ami Hirsch is gonna be in 
15 years, what he's going to call himself. We'll see. Well, the Jews will muddle through. Uh, Alana, do you, do you, so what I just said was next year in Jerusalem, which is the whole like exilic despair of the Jews, which is funny because like you can just get on a plane and go to Jerusalem now. But did you know, uh, Alana, that Cubans also say next year in Havana at oh. like major events like Thanksgiving and Christmas? Really? Yes, they do. My fa- my family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now less so because again, you can get on a plane to Havana. Just nobody wants to go because it's a disaster. But like in the 80s and 90s, when you were still living in this exile thing and Cuba was like a rogue country and you couldn't actually travel there, people would say, look, lift their glasses and say, next year in Havana. And uh, I know there's many cultural parallels between Cuban and Jewish life, actually. There, there are. But I, I, I want to say that, like, to me, if there was one thing that I wanted to have everyone in America adopt from the Jews right now, it's that capacity to imagine a new world. Like, could I actually leave Egypt now and go and do something completely? I, I'm going to risk it. And I'm going to try to imagine being in a completely new world with new challenges, new possibilities. And like, there's something so, there's something so special about the bravery and excitement, like the thrill of that. It feels like to me it's of this moment. But that but I think that that's something I think that's a very again to cite another parallel with the Cubans, that's a that's a very minority exilic people thing, I think. Like my ex, mother, my third kid, like in her purse, carries her like four passports. Cause she and then she's like literally the granddaughter of Auschwitz survivors. Like she's always expecting she's gonna have to get on the plane and like bail and recreate her life. In some weird epigenetic historical way, she still thinks that way. And I don't know that most Amer- <laughs> Americans think that way. On the contrary, Americans refuse to leave. Like, this is the last stop. There's no American expats. No one leaves. No but one think, leaves the but, US. But, but hold on a second. But, like, think about it. Like, it is where the this country came from that, too. This country came from a bunch of people who left somewhere. And and it's just, I do this thing every year. I've, I think I've, I've I may have taught, I'm sure I told Antonio about this. Um, there's a HBO miniseries where it's like it's two-parter but I think combined it's like five or six hours called Saints and Strangers um and it's about the founding of America but it's amazing and what it's about is is it's about these people who some of whom came here for religion some of whom came here for money some of whom came here because they were running away like and they all had different motives and different imperatives but the thing that they all shared in common was this like uh, jumping off the diving board and just being like whatever I don't know me, whatever I'm jumping into, I'm going to make better than what I'm jumping out of. And that feels human. It doesn't feel Jewish. It feels like that's a human, that humans have the capacity for that. And I just, somehow Americans have gotten very afraid. And I don't think, I, I think that that's, I think that's holding us back. Well, because I think that dynamism is impossible to maintain in the fourth or fifth generation. And we don't have a frontier anymore, right? Either the abstract frontier or the literal frontier. I think after a while, Americans just want like stability and peace and their children to have a slightly better life. And that's the end of it. They don't want to disrupt everything all the time. I could argue that we have, uh, we do have a new frontier in that everything we're looking at now needs to get remade. I mean, some see it that way. I mean, I, I do think one of the things that, I mean, again, Israel is so spectacular is so unique in so many ways. I, I think our, our friend, I'm using it ironically, Richard just discovered that Israel has is the only country in the West with a positive birth rate. Like, oh, he just got the memo. Um, and oh, how could it possibly be the case that they have a positive birth rate? 
But again, I think military service, being a small country, being ba- basically in a state of constant war, um, actually having a frontier, like the, the West Bank or Judea, Samaria, however you, however you talk about it, is basically a frontier. Um, like all that keeps it kind of hopping <laughs> in a way that you, you don't see that here anymore. But also, oh, and this, and now we, we can actually, if you want, if you still want to touch on Saudi Arabia, we can, but like, because you know what else keeps it going? Moral complication, right? You have to wake up every day and it's not scrubbed and antiseptic and everything hasn't been perfected. You haven't even, you haven't told yourself that you are at or near moral perfection. In fact, you realize you have a long way to go and it creates, it generates ambition. And I think that there's a, there's a relationship between the American embrace of a sense of purity and our stagnation. Like it, it, the, the two things feel very tied together to me. I, I feel like there's no, and maybe this, um, maybe I'm just betraying some things here, but like there's some part of this that actually does feel like it relates back to some part of my own background and like uh, growing up in a religious community where it's like, there is some way of like, there, there's no possibility or charge of something wrong, something I have to fix, something I have to, something that like went seriously off the rails, which is a reason to wake up tomorrow morning. And somehow America's decision to like scrub ourselves of all things that we might make better in a practical way and instead focus on like how we're going to scrub our minds of thoughts. It just, it feels, it feels stagnating. What is, can we talk about Saturday River though? Cause Alana, you did, I mean, we, I, I can't believe we have gotten to the, to the end here, but you did an amazing, well, not just be several pieces of so tablet, a Jewish magazine, to be clear, overtly Jewish magazine in which the, the Hebrew date appears on, on the edition that you can tell a true Jewish magazine because you've actually got the print outable PDF version you put out on Fridays for observant Jews. Went to Saudi Arabia, Arab country, in theory, you would think about enemy of the, of the Jewish state. But yet in the current lineup between Sunni Arabs and Jews against the Shiites, how did we get here? It is the case that you can go there and you went there with a the whole crew of people. So tell us what, tell us about what that, what that was like. So yeah, so Saudi Arabia, which at one point in history was the lead exporter of uh, anti-Jewish poison, um, has somehow found its philo-Semitism. And it is part and parcel of a series of reforms happening in the country, which are at once totally exhilarating and also potentially uh, unbelievable in the in the absolute use of that term, meaning I don't know what's, I don't know whether or not they're going to work. Nobody can. But one of the, uh, one of the consequences of them opening themselves up in different ways and of uh, Saudi Arabia uh, reorienting or playing with the idea of reorienting itself, both inside of the region of the Middle East, but also the globe and vis-a-vis um, America, which had been a staunch ally and now has a more barbed relationship, I think, is that it's changed its relationship or its posture toward Israel and toward Jews. And one of the happy effects of that is that we were invited to be the first, uh, not just Jewish, but Zionist publication to go as a uh, as a magazine with a full staff and report freely from the country, um, which was 
enormous fun and uh, actually an incredible experience. I kept my father passed away a few years ago. And the whole time I was in Saudi Arabia, I kept thinking like, my father is watching this with astonishment. Like the notion, if I said to any American Jew in the 1990s that I would be, first of all, that I'd be head of some Jewish publication, but also then that um, that we'd be going, leaving a trip to Saudi Arabia. It just would have been so, it would seem like such a fantasy, but it was fabulous. Fascinating, fascinating place that's just truly like on a speed that we can't even comprehend. Like it feels, it's so fast that it feels like the wheels could come off the train. And you feel that speed is not just in terms of Saudi Arabia's relationship with Israel. You mean just as a modern presumably modernizing a reforming society that it will fundamentally change. I mean, do you think the, the Borg and by the Borg, I mean like little B Borg, like just the whole Western cultural thing, is that going to somehow penetrate, you know, traditional Islam and create a different society? I was in a sukkah in Riyadh um, and with a friend of mine who's Saudi and he and I have been having that conversation about, you know, is Saudis, is the, is the opening to the West Will they be able to control what comes in? Um, and I was arguing that it's something I would think somebody might want to be careful with if you are running a country that you would like to see uh, only adopt certain things. Um, you open the door, you may not know what comes in. Um, and we were joking around about it. He said, oh, no, no, no. It's, there's such control here it, that that can't ever happen. And then we, as, as he was saying that, we walked past an oud, a stand selling oud, which is a, 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 a fragrant wood. And it was like, it looked like it was in, from Williamsburg. Like the whole store had this like sans serif font and it literally looked like it was from an Instagram from Instagram land. And he was like, ah, okay, I see. Like maybe, maybe things might move faster than I, I, I couldn't have even predicted this. And I, I think that that's true. I think that there is a, there's a global culture that will inevitably touch everyone that modernizes. But the benefit is, is they're an autocracy. Like they will, they're still a, a very tightly run country. And one imagines that it might be uh, easier for that government to control things than uh, than other more open democratic countries. I just checked the Saudi birth rate because to me, that's like a barometer of how much modernity has sort of touched the country. And it's above replacement, but lower than Israel's. It's 2.46, which is kind of median. Interesting. And their population, I mean, it's their population is um, is bigger, is also bigger than Israel's. Um, their country is enormous. You, you may not be interested in modernity, but modernity is interested in you. You know, I was so fascinated because, you know, I was walking around without a head covering um, and with, you know, short sleeves and pants. And I was looking around and there are a lot of women in Riyadh who are uh, who have head coverings on. There are women in film cobs, um, And then there are women who are walking around completely with their heads completely uncovered. And I was trying to, I'm doing like the reporters thing of trying to ask them Ask the people who were there, what was the moment like when they said you no longer have to cover your hair? Like there was no resistance. There was no, 
backlash to it. And a couple of the people who I was talking to were like, no, 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 you have to realize, Alana, like, uh, for years before it was official, like the women in Riyadh, their hair covering was already like hanging down by their neck. Like it was barely on. And so then like they just like when the rule when the rules changed, they just took it off. Um, but they were already loosening themselves. So the, the reforms, I think, in some senses were um, were ways of formalizing or catching up to what the what the big cities, especially had where they had already moved. But there's also it's a big country and that's just the cities. And I think that there's we just, we just simply don't know. But it, what feels really interesting to me is that they seem to have, they, they seem to be having a, a conversation about their own power. And that strikes me as really, really interesting. They, they understand that they have the capacity to have more, to, to, to be a geopolitical player, I think. They're wondering whether or not they want to be. And if they want to be, how so? And I think there's moves with opening up conversations with Iran, with Syria, with China. It's all about reframing themselves. You think it's going to be easier to find a uh, kosher sandwich in Riyadh than uh, Brussels in 10 years? Absolutely. It's probably easier now. I think I'm mentioning Belgium because they had some anti-kosher slaughtering bill or something. Maybe it was in Belgium, some other European country. Yeah, and, but, and, that, um, and, and I do think that the, that, that the, the Western European countries are moving in such a way that is becoming unfriendly to religion and unfriendly to tradition. What a fascinating realignment. It was, it was wild. I can't tell you how wild it was. I mean, we were invited somewhere for, to a wonderful person had us over for dinner and um, only wanted to talk to us about Israel. They were just like fascinated by Israel and fascinated about like what we thought of the government and what we thought of, and Israeli society. And one of them was like, Israeli food has really taken off globally. I mean, it's like the, 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 the ease and the warmth of the conversation was what struck me. There was no tiptoeing. There was no stress. There was no, there were no, there was no um, like uh, anxiety around broaching certain parts of the conversation. It was like talking about France. Is the crux of the re realignment universalizing versus particularist tendencies? I was just going to postulate that I think, leaving the Palestinian thing aside, there's probably more in common between an Orthodox Jew and a practicing Muslim than there is between either and like a secular European. <laughs> like those two cats, leave the whole Palestinian West Bank thing aside, would have way more in common and would understand each other and could actually like cohabit the same space a lot more than your average, again, to pick on the Belgians, your average Belgian with either of those. <laughs> so, um, but that, I don't know, that's just a random like speculation in a podcast, but I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> Again, I think that, um, I think that that's not untrue. And I think that we're getting back to questions of like, and it, it, it's really useful, right? It's useful to keep talking about how many different ways there are to articulate or describe the two teams that everyone sees as emerging, Right. It's universalist versus particularist. It's institutionalist versus anti-institutionalist. Team A, team B, brokenness and status quoists. But I think they're all getting at um, the same two, this, the dichotomy between the same two sides. And I do think 
that there's a way in which certain countries that are built on uh, roots in tribalism, which Saudi Arabia is, find historically rooted faith-based actions, relationships, and uh, networks to make sense. And there's a certain kind of way in which modern secular society finds tribalism, faith, con- the connections that we make between them to be anathema. I mean, the whole Nepo babies idea is fascinating to me. Why wouldn't you, if you had, if I made something, why wouldn't I want everyone I know and my entire family to work for it? <laughs> I mean, that it would seem like it, and it, it just marks me as completely tribal, but I would want to create something that helped the people of my tribe. And that some something about that feels, I feel like America is in a very anti-tribal place and anti-tribal in all, like because your tribe is not, is not anything other than a set of corporations and the government. For people who basically say, I, my tribe is something else. My, my context for my life is something other than a set of corporations and the federal government and set of politics, that, those are the two teams, the way that I see it. Yeah, I mean, under, under capitalism, your consumption pattern is your tribe. I mean, I, I've, I'm all for relabeling the red-blue thing to be the, like, REI-Cabela's divide, basically. Do you think the outdoors is about mountain climbing and expensive athleisure, or do you go to buy, like, guns and fishing gear? Right? That, that is the divide. And it's funny that tribalism... I mean, the other thing, right, is that in the Enlightenment construct, the nation state is supposed to be the fundamental organizational unit of society, which is has an administrative state with it, has is, is associated with print capitalism. Anyhow, there's, there's the nation state and the tribe are, are very different. I mean, certainly in the United States, it's absolutely very different. Um, and I think, again, getting back to Israel, because everything goes back to Israel, a lot of the new right, like the Mizrahi Jews, who are the, just to be clear, not the European Jews, they, they didn't come from an Enlightenment society. They don't have the Enlightenment as like the, as the backdrop. They, they literally came from Arab countries to, to Israel. And so they don't necessarily have the default of the nation state as the, or, or the Enlightenment as the intellectual backdrop to everything that they see. And they're much more comfortable with, uh, I think, with a nation that is much more seated around religious or tribal belonging than an administrative state that, much necess- that must necessarily be universalist. Right? Like, I, it seems to me that that part of the world that that's and it's true it is a weird default like why do we assume that nation states work for everybody or that everyone can be an american which i think is beautiful it's a gorgeous thing that's not typically how that's not how most people think of themselves they're, they're not part of universalist organizations that can admit anybody on the contrary the whole defining thing about it is that it isn't everybody but it's a subset of people that it actually excludes lots of people um and that again in the enlightenment worldview that's not cool but in other worldviews it's it's the default like, don't you find it interesting that a lot of the new right, that like Ben Gavir, that you did a great profile on, he's a Kurdish Jew, he's a Mizrahi, right? Um, and, and a lot of them are. Um, it's a very different way of, and, and like, I've had this debate, again, citing my baby mama, who hates being quoted in my, in my media, but, you know, her parents are Ashkenazi Jews, and they look at what's going on in Israel, and they look at it with total horror. They don't understand where it's coming from. To them, Israel is, is secularism, it's liberalism. It's not Middle Eastern in, in sort of flavor or, or, or you know, and it, it's just a different thing. And it's, I don't know, I, it's how I imagine the wasps looking at, you know, Italian-Americans and Irish taking over or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, this is not America. What are you talking about? Right. It's this whole other thing. But in um, that way, they're traversing Eric's universalist, particularist uh, 
spectrum and what what what's making them uncomfortable sorry to bring back uh jewish ethnocentrism but what's making them uncomfortable is that israel is different and that it's uh it's not it doesn't it doesn't look like the paradigm of universalism the paradigm of sameness it actually throws a wrench into it and looks it, it's 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 calling out difference and in that respect i think that that's right they're like the german jews who looked down on eastern european jews who came here for speaking yiddish for looking different but you know i guess all i'd say is is the german jews didn't make hollywood <laughs> like it's, it, which is not i'm not i'm not trying to like be to bash on, on, on German Jews, I'm just saying like particularism generates creativity. Universalism generates a bunch of other goods for society. But if we're in a moment where what we need is to build stuff, to make new things, to reimagine how the world functions, I think there's a real role to be played uh, by particular particularists and the, the sinking in to their specific gifts and what that generates. And I mean that across all groups. There's another thing we can add to our dichotomies list, which is insider-outsider. And I feel like deeply, profoundly comfortable. As an outsider, I am fundamentally on the outside and I am happy there. And I feel that the outside for me right now Culturally, politically, socially, religiously, tribally, the outside is the place of enormous energy. And it's where I find like inspiration and the best work is happening. I don't want to be inside anymore. Alana, uh, we've been talking about the institutionalist, anti-institutionalist post that you, their article on the tablet for since the beginning of the podcast. So it's so great to uh, have you on who, you know, wrote the post, wrote the piece and, uh, you know, created the magazine that has hosted, you know, so many of the interesting conversations that we've, uh, we've, re we've referenced during our uh, podcast today and throughout. Thanks so much for coming on. Alana. Thank you so much for having me. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 